0: Hello and welcome to Fun Problems, the Problems of Fun. This is a board game design podcast all about how to design board game podcasts. I am your host, Peter C. Hayward.
1: I'm AJ Brandon.
0: And we are not actually going to tell you how to design a podcast. That part was a lie. This entire podcast is a lie. I'm sorry. Let's jump straight to follow up. So AJ, remember earlier this podcast where I said that this was a podcast about designing board game podcasts? That was just not true. That was just,
1: that was just, just a lie. Sorry, I hate to bring it to you. Wow. We, we start off on the right foot, at least. Everybody knows our integrity <laughs> and our intentions with this. They know that we're honest when we make a
0: mistake. We will bring it up and needlessly berate ourselves, even uh, even within the same podcast. What are we talking about today, my friend?
1: Today we're talking about community-submitted hooks slash unique selling points. Ooh.
0: Let's, let's, get, let's get some backstory on this.
1: Uh, a couple episodes ago, we were talking about hooks, which uh, as a as a quick follow up, you should go back and watch the ep- or listen to the episode. But in case you didn't, or in case you forgotten, basically a hook is the unique selling point of your game, the thing that if someone says, "Oh, what's your game about?" it's the one sentence pitch that you give them that makes them say, "Oh, that sounds interesting." I want to hear more. Can you give me an example of a very good hook? Oh, no, there's there's no good hooks. None at all. <laughs> you know what? I, I will give you multiple good hook examples using the same game. Inhuman Conditions, the one that AJ never shuts up about. Maybe we should also do at least one example of a game that people have heard of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. I'll pick something else. So some good examples of hooks. First off, there's an experience first hook. This is something where the mechanics and the theme and what you are doing... Is inherently appealing. Is inherently appealing. And is going to generate a particular i think the best example of this is dread the rpg where you're playing and instead of rolling a die for skill checks you pull out pieces from a jenga tower and build it up so the tension slowly builds along with the story along with the jenga tower that you're building and it naturally builds in the tension or release cycle of a horror uh film or or game. that's such a good hook and one of the good things about it is that it has this inevitability to it like you Mm. will it will
0: eventually collapse and i think in that, when it collapses, that say that you've gone mad. Is that what that indicates?
1: I believe that's you. you just die. Your your character's done. Oh right. So it's an oh god, such a good hook. Give me one from Inhuman Conditions. Inhuman Conditions. So this one has a thematic hook. Let's go with that one because I could just pick any type of hook because it has them all. <laughs> and this one, so this is sort of thematic slash IP hook, which is to say from a specific property. So in this case, it is the voight test from Blade Runner, as you pointed out to me embarrassingly when I first brought this up. <laughs> and so if you've seen Blade Runner, it's basically you're going to have an interrogation where one person is interrogating. They're trying to figure if they're a robot and they're looking for little idiosyncrasies in their speech and everything. So the IP-based hook is, hey, you like Blade Runner? This is that really cool thing from Blade Runner.
0: Yeah, it offers an experience that no other game will like I've never heard of another game like that. It sounds incredible.
1: Can't wait to play it with you.
0: Someday. Someday when we <laughs> see each other again. Here's one for you. What is the hook of Wingspan? Wingspan is obviously the big hit of 2019. Like that, that's, that's the new evergreen. I was talking with my friend Nicole who uh, used to run Jelly Bean Games with me and we were talking about evergreens and we we're like, what's the most recent, like definitely going to be an evergreen? Wingspan, without a doubt. Like Wingspan is going to be around in
1: 20 years time. I think it's just such a big hit and so popular. But what is the hook of that game? The hook of that game is actually the components themselves. So you can look at the game and it's a perfectly competent Euro, pretty easy to pick up. It's got some degree of depth, but none of those things are something that really makes it stand out. What makes it really stand out is if you see this thing set up, it's got a dice tower that comes in the game that's got thematically appropriate colorings and art You've got these adorable little eggs that look like little Easter egg toys that go on the birds to mark the points. They're completely unnecessary and actually hinder gameplay a little bit, but they're <laughs> really beautiful and really make the game pop. There's the great art. There's these chunky, nice dice. Stonemaier is always about the components. And in Wingspan, it blows the components out of the water comparatively to any other production you've seen. Absolutely. I want to talk about, before we jump into the the episode, I want to talk about What I'm thinking of is support hooks. So these are not
0: the hook of a game, but they are a thing that once you've got someone even partially hooked, they're gonna draw them in, draw them in, draw them in. I don't have a better term for it. I'm gonna say support hook. And so for wingspan, I feel like the educational element, it's not a hook, but it's a support hook. Like every card in wingspan has bird facts on it and they're all completely true. And like the wingspan of the birds is all accurate and all that. And you're not gonna hear that and run out and buy the game. But if you are interested, I feel like that's a a supporting selling point.
1: Would you agree with that? I see what you're saying. To me, it's just like a weaker hook, but I think support hook is a little more kind to to the game, you know? Most of the best, most popular games out there have multiple hooks. That's why they're so successful, because they can appeal to different people for different reasons or for one person because of the multiple hooks. Maybe you'll hear the first one and think, that sounds kind of cool. And then you hit them with the second one and they're like, wow, okay, 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 I'm in. And we sort of touched on this a little bit last
0: week with the robots, and this is very self-serving, but when you made up a hook for robots, not made up, when you <laughs> tried to identify the hook for robots, it was interesting because it was a very different hook to the one that I've seen attract people. I would almost consider the one that you picked as the hook as like a support hook. And I don't think it's a quite a strong support hook, but from my experience playtesting the game anyway, people have kind of seen the 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 robot crushing things into cubes and that's what's grabbed them. And then the fact that your workers span multiple spaces... Is a second like like you said like drag him and then hit him with the thing and so yeah having having multiple hooks is obviously better than having one hook
1: but it's okay if if you have I think main main hooks and support hooks yeah it's interesting can you think of a support hook in another game I just want to like get another example or two here's
0: what it is okay I think I've, I've codified it my system's brain is lighting up you mentioned USP do you
1: want to quickly describe what a USP is. So that stands for unique selling point. And what that means is it's something about your game. This is often referred to in in business. This is more about like a product, but your game is a product if you want it to succeed in retail. Quick backstory, most of what I say comes from the retail background. So the unique selling point is the thing that when you hear about that game or that product, you think, I have never seen a game do this before. If I want this thing, I have to get this game because it's the only one that does it.
0: To fold USP into the terminology, not always, but often the USP is what I would call the main hook. So in Wingspan, those little eggs, they only exist in Wingspan. They don't exist anywhere else. Educational facts, any game has those. So, you, know, you can put those in any game. So that's not a USP, but it is still a, like I said, a weak hook or a support hook. And so when you were defining the hook for Wingspan, I was thinking the thing that made me like Wingspan was... I like engine builders. I think it's a really clean... God, I think it's such a clean little engine builder. And obviously, this is a personal preference thing. You're welcome to leave angry comments saying like, no, actually, it's not clean for these reasons. But for me, the the thing that hooked me into Wingspan was just how good the engine building aspect was. Now, by no means is that a USP. (laughs) (laughs) Like a clean engine builder. Oh, wow, Wingspan invented that. No, not at all. Wingspan does a lot of things right. And I think that's one of them. It's a, a support hook, but distinctly not a USP. To answer your question, I would say the the cleanness
1: of the engine builder is a is a non-main hook for Wingspan, but we can probably come up with a better example. Let's leave that for now because I we're, we're going to be talking about hooks all episode, so I'm sure that more examples are just going to come up organically as we go. For sure. Before we dive into the user submitted ones, first there's something that's a little self-serving that I want to dip into. <laughs> AJ, you're going to have me pitch your game again. <laughs> Every episode, you're like, now, our, act- our fun activity this
0: week is, Petey, you're going to pitch Scallywags. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did definitely blindside you with a very self-serving one that time, but I'm going to keep the trend going. We're <laughs> liars, <laughs> we're, we're scam artists, and now we're shells.
0: So this week, we're going to be making compliments about AJ's beard.
1: <laughs> oh, my beard is so good right
0: it's, now. It's a beautiful beard, I love it.
1: I, I grew it much longer than I normally would because, you know, I'm in quarantine lockdown, so it doesn't matter. But I'm really digging it. I think I'm just going to be a, a mountain man now.
0: Yeah, I think it was good on you.
1: Back back to me. <laughs> Off the topic of me and back to me. <laughs> I was recently on an episode of the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Oh, yes. Good episode. Thank you. So that's what, that's what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> Where I sort of did a deep dive into... Uh, my thoughts on designing a game as a product for retail. I do recommend listening to the episode. We will go into that type of thing again, uh, just as we go through various topics in this podcast. But I just wanted to ask you, were there any things in there in particular that stood out to you that you didn't think of or realize before? And is there anything that you disagree with that you think, I I just got wrong? The one thing that really stuck with me, because I'd never thought about this before, so I really enjoyed this, is you talked about the
0: dimensions of a box in two different ways. So normally when we think of the dimensions of box, and this is more my publisher add-on, so this might not be super applicable to those who are not looking to publish. When we're talking about the dimensions of box, we're almost always talking about the width, length, depth, the physical size of it in terms of what you can see across the room. But in the episode, you also talked about the weight and you talked about how customers, and because you come from a physical retail store background, this makes total sense, they would pick up the box and be like, whoa, this is so heavy for X dollars. This is great. And I just never considered that before. I'd never thought about someone picking up a box, feeling how heavy it
1: was, and making a decision based on that. I thought that was really interesting. There's a lot of ways that you can add perceived value to the to the game as people are, are deciding whether or not to buy it. It's a very abstract thing. Like, how much fun is this game going to be worth? Is it going to be worth $40 of fun? That's a hard question. As anyone who knows uh, anything about psychology knows our brains do not like hard questions. So what we do is we substitute an easier question. You know, it's hard to say, you know, will this uh, political candidate be the best thing for the country on all these different axes, you know, on social issues and the economy and stuff. That's a very complicated question. A much easier question to ask is, do I like this person? Do do they have a pleasant personality? Do they remind me of myself? Would I have a beer with them?
0: Yes, that's really interesting, yeah.
1: Yep. So that, anyway, I don't want to delve into politics too much here. But the same thing applies to, to when customers are trying to evaluate a game that they want to buy. Am I going to have $40 worth of fun with this game is a very hard question, saying, oh, this feels like the components are heavy, the components look nice, the art is good. These things add to the perceived value of the game and make it more likely that the customer is going to think it's worth whatever price you're charging for it. We'll go more into that some other day, but I'm glad to have brought something up that you learned from. If you didn't listen to the last episode, AJ has recently started working at Jellybean Games.
0: He's our community manager, and he's doing a great job. And he actually did a presentation in-house the other day. And so I'm trying to remember if any of that was stuff that you also covered on that podcast episode, because that was really interesting. You, You took a bunch of games and you shrunk them down on the screen for us to one inch by one inch and said, which of these titles can you read and which of these titles can't you? Again, none of this is really relevant to the design side. This is, all, this is all published stuff. But because I spend a lot of my time thinking about publishing, uh, this this is the stuff that really stuck in my mind.
1: Yeah, well, I think that a lot of our listeners are going to try to self-publish. And so I, I do hope that this type of information is going to be valuable to them. It's certainly not going to be the focus of the podcast. But I think that there is value in, in touching on it, at least. Like as the designer considering, if this component is going to be really big and obtrusive, but is going to be very light, that might be incongruous with what the customer is expecting when they pick up the box. Absolutely. If they expect a certain genre, if they're picking up a game and it says like 10 minutes and the box costs $60 and it's, it's huge. <laughs> There's a disconnect there. Exactly.
0: Even if you have no intention of publishing yourself... The more you can think about this part of the process before pitching, the better your pitch will go. Simple as that. Mm -hmm. Because if you go to a publisher and present them with something where they just need to tidy it up, add art, and put a title on it, the easier you make it for a publisher to sign your game,
1: the more likely it is that a publisher will sign your game. That's just basic math. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So to start off, before we dive into the episode proper, there's one more thing I'd like to do. And since this is all a community episode... And by the way, I would love for us to have a good back and forth with the community. If you guys who are listening have any things that you want to ask us on air, if there's any particular things you want us to elaborate more on that we covered in the podcast proper, we'd be happy to go back and do that type of thing. I think that it's it's really valuable to us because we might think that we've covered something but underserved a topic. And so we had a, a listener comment on uh, BGG I wonder if y'all would be interested in addressing minimum viable product. I get why you would want to create this version of a game first, but I'm having trouble operationalizing it. If we know that deck builders work, what would my minimum viable product version of my deck builder be? So I gave them a a quick answer there, but I'd like to go into a little bit more detail here. Peter, what, what are your first thoughts?
0: Yeah. So my first thought is that we're talking about minimum viable prototypes yes. here, right? That when I say MVP in Design Sense, I'm thinking about prototype, not product. And a minimum viable prototype, I can understand the confusion, is about essentially testing your USP. So if we know Deck Builders work, why bother building an MVP of my Deck Builder? Well, what are you adding to Deck Builder? What are you bringing to the Deck
1: Builder genre? If that's not in the prototype, it's not an MVP for your game. Exactly. So... If you're building a deck builder that's based off of Dominion, you don't have to worry about the aspects that are like Dominion, that stuff already works. We have Dominion, it exists, great. And so if it's a uh, worker placement that uses deck building, it's like, okay, we can start with the baseline of the deck builder formula that Dominion gave us, and you can work in the worker placement aspects of it, but then pay attention to where it breaks down, to what things don't work about that combination, what design choices dominion made to better serve its audience and how those no longer apply because you're doing something different so it basically just means that you have a different starting point you don't have to test whether or not the deck building portion works you have to test what the thing that you're doing that's unique about deck building whether that works a question that comes up a lot is what is the game that every
0: game designer should own just now as you're talking i was like oh i have a new answer to that that i've never answered before i think pretty much every game designer should own a copy of sushi go not only because Sushi Go is great, Sushi Go great game, fellow Australian designer, amazing, but because if you are trying to test a new drafting mechanism, pull out Sushi Go and apply it to that. Sushi Go already has all the different scoring systems and the different set collections and things that aren't set collections, all that kind of stuff. I have a game called Bugs and Bugs, came out about three years ago from Kids Table Board Game, and I didn't. But looking back, I absolutely could have just pulled out my copy of Sushi Go and tested the drafting mechanism with the Sushi Go cards. As our commenter said, an MVP doesn't need to test does deck building work. In this case, does set collection work? We know set collection works. Use this game that uses set collection. It's testing does my drafting method work? And if you know that works, then okay, now you have a good starting point and you can start to build your own set collection.
1: Just because this is fresh in my mind, I I went through a similar thing. I'm going to talk a little bit about the design process of Scallywags, the game that we mentioned a couple times. The the place that that started with was uh, a receipt fell onto the ground when when I was at work at Board Game Bliss, and it curled up at both ends. And I thought, that looks kind of like a scroll. Could I do something with that? Could that be a game component or game mechanism? What would I do with that? The thing that you do with a scroll is you unravel it. So how do I make the unraveling part interesting? Basically, I made some, some lines on it and I said, ah, you reveal more stuff, you get points. And you reveal bad things, you you lose. And so then it quickly became, you know, testing uh, someone setting up traps for you and you reveal them and then and switching back and forth. Uh, that worked pretty well, pretty quickly. So now I've, I've got the cool unique thing tested. What I did was I said, okay, I've got a cool action selection mechanism, but what do I do with that? What, what, what am I action selecting? And my first thought was a roll-and-write, because in a roll-and-write, there's no player interaction, and you just get random benefits. Wouldn't it be more interesting if there was player interaction, and if the benefits you got were related to what players were offering you? And so I tested that out, and what did I do? I didn't create my whole new mechanic for for roll-and-write scoring. I took out my copy of Sonora, and I just said, okay, the bottom section over here and the top section over here, these are the scoring metrics. That was very simple for me to test the interlocking mechanisms between them. So I tested the scroll part that was unique and I already know that Sonora exists and works well. And so now I'm trying to test the interplay between two different systems. So then I tested that and I kept getting stuck at that point. What I ended up doing was I had to cut the extra part, cut the the part that I was trying to connect to because no matter what system I switched to, that wasn't working. So I found the breakdown and I went back to just the scroll. Then I went back and I said, okay, we're back to the scroll. That's the thing that worked. That's the thing I care about anyway. This is the unique selling point. This is the hook. You get to play with scrolls. How cool is that? I had the scroll. Now I'm refocusing on how to just make that part interesting without needing anything else. It's just focusing on that interaction between the players. And when I created the MVP for that, immediately it started singing. I knew that that was the right direction. And I kept processing it in that direction. And now it's coming along quite well. So that's sort of the trajectory uh, for one example of a game that I was working on, and how I started with an MVP, and then I evolved it, realized that what I was changing into didn't work, went back and redid the MVP. I'll give you an example. I learn
0: almost everything by messing it up. <laughs>
1: yeah, same. <laughs> I'm very,
0: I'm very bad at life, and then learn from that and get better at life. And so in my five years of running a board game company, I've made all the mistakes in my, in my 10 years of designing, I've made all the mistakes. And so I learned about MVPs very much the hard way. I have this game called Boons of the Gods, and I've been quote-unquote working on it for four years now. I haven't touched it in years and years because what I did was instead of... I didn't make an MVP. I really should have made an MVP. Instead, I made the entire game. This is meant to be like a two-hour game. Without testing it, I made the entire game, brought it out, and kind of the hook of this is that it's a two-part game. So it's a little bit like the initial draft in Twilight Imperium, except instead of just drafting to set yourself up, that is its own game. So you're playing a little making the map game and you get points from that and then once you've done that you keep that you know these points transfer into the second half but now you're playing on the map that you made as part of that game which i think is, is a kind of interesting idea except i made the entire game sat down with people to play it and and this was again this is meant to be like quite this is the biggest game i would ever worked on so i didn't really know how to do it so i just made everything sat down to work on it played the bit where you get your initial resources and your initial points by making the map and it just broke it just completely broke one person had 20 times the number of diamond tokens that I'd even printed because I was like no one will ever get this many it just couldn't have broken any more than it did and so we never got to play the second half and I I still haven't actually ever played the second half because the first half was so broken if I'd MVP'd it I would have just made the bare bones version of that first half and run it by myself five times then brought people over and just run that first half a few times and got an idea of how many resources you would have to bring into the second half So yes, MVPs, they exist for a reason. We recommend them for a reason. Do as I say, not as I did.
1: (laughs) So let's jump into our community submitted pitches. Our first one comes from Captain Cheddarbeard, who is officially my new favorite listener. (laughs) What a name. (laughs) Considering your wife listens, that's quite a claim. Yeah, I wish. She doesn't care about (laughs) games. (laughs) Oh, oh, snap. (laughs) Okay, so Captain Cheddarbeard says draft yourself a selection of stackable turtles and build the best tower to precariously perch your own unique disc of land upon. So it sounds like it's a dexterity game and you're drafting these tiles and building up like a Jenga tower and you're putting your piece on and if it falls over that spat. Do you think that sounds accurate? Yeah, that's what I got from it. I definitely got dexterity and then kind of like Discworld vibes from it. Mm -hmm. So first of all, what type of hook is this? I would definitely call this a component hook. This This sounds like a textbook component hook to me. Yes, the stackable turtles is the thing that I'm like, I want to see what those look like. Those things are what's going to make or break your game. If those are really fun and cute and nice to use then that is going to be the thing that sells your game. The, the difficult thing about this is we're just doing it off of the text. Component hooks particularly, it really helps to see them or to feel them. Yeah, I mean, my first thought, other than the same as
0: you, oh, Stackable Turtles, that sounds neat, is immediately very negative. And not negative because it sounds like a bad idea or because the guy has a bad name. He has an amazing name. <laughs> it's because I cannot foresee a game like this lasting more than five minutes like I just I don't I don't see this being like a a 40 minute game (laughs) you know I I don't know if I want to stack turtles for 40 minutes
1: I mean maybe maybe but it, it depends right like we don't know who this is aimed at if this is a family weight game or even a kid's game you know that could be a great fit for it right
0: my concern is if it's a five minute game which again you're right would be great for the family weight I'm just not sure how to make a game that has stackable turtles and discs at a price that works for a family weight 10 minute game Now, I might not be the target publisher for this in the same way as, you know, there's a target market, there's a target publisher, someone like Spin Master or Hasbro, they might look at this and be like, oh yeah, we can easily print 2 million copies, which brings this price down to 20 bucks and, and, you know, people will bring it out and play the equivalent of Hungry Hungry Hippos. But if this was a pitch coming to me and I could only assess it as I am as a publisher, I'm like, I don't know how to make this game. I don't see how it lasts more than 10 minutes and I don't see how to make it at a price that would support a 10 minute game.
1: That's fair. I think those are definitely valid criticisms and definitely things to watch out for. I'm a little more positive than that. I could totally see this being like a Haba game or... I forget the publisher, whoever does Ice Cool. I could see them potentially doing something with this. Brain games? Maybe. I I can't remember. I'm sorry. I'm I'm always the worst at remembering publishers and designers and stuff. (laughs) I think that it it depends a lot on execution and it depends a lot on how nice those turtles get. If you've got a publisher that can really make it sing or even, was it Blue Orange Games? They have really phenomenal toy factor. Yeah. Ice Cool is phenomenal games. Oh yeah. Super, super well made.
0: But if you look at the components, they're all cardboard except for the turtles maybe the clips as well but like except for the, the turtles vast, except for vast... the penguins buddy <laughs> sorry <laughs> you got turtles on the brain except for the turtles and the penguins and the fish except for all the all the sea creatures it's all cardboard like the the bulk of that game is just cardboard boxes
1: which we know we
0: can do as publishers and they've managed to make that game last what half an hour 40
1: minutes I would say I would say 20 or 30
0: the core component is something that is very is a very very small part of, I mean the, the hook component is, is probably the map and the I keep saying turtles penguins <laughs> It's the penguins. The penguins are delightful. <laughs> the penguins are delightful, but if you just look at the amount of plastic in them, it's it's minuscule. You know, you, a, a single penguin is what an inch tall and half an inch wide at most. I could have published that game. No one brought it to me, and I wish I had because God, that's a good game. <laughs> Whereas this one, from again, and all we can work from is the hook here. Maybe you're going to write in and be like, actually, no, Peter. Here's why you're wrong. But the fact that it's multiple stackable turtles suggests to me that the bulk of the components are going to be these turtles. And I think even if you look at Hasbro Spin Master, I'm a little concerned that like, you know, Hungry Hippos has a bunch of little balls and has the, the hippos, but the amount of plastic involved is very small compared to the rest of the game. So that, that, that's my concern. It's just uh, the pitch has a red flag for me and I'd see it cause it sounds cool. But as soon as I saw it, I would know for sure if it was doable by me or, or a publisher my size or, or, you know, general hobby size. So all of that is obviously criticism about the game, which I can't see. As a pitch, very good. Like, I don't think there's anything I would change in that pitch. I think you communicated your core idea, your hook, uh, you got us interested. Like, my concerns with this are not like, this is a bad pitch, I don't understand what's happening. It's, this is a good pitch for the game that you've made, I'm concerned about the game that you've made. So Captain Beard, good pitch. Like, I, I don't think I would change anything about this pitch. My concerns
1: are not with the pitch, it's with the game. <laughs> the next one comes from Anonymous, who says, Create and maintain rhymy and alliterative... Susian type creatures and items out of fluff, globs, lumps, and flare in this fast-paced card drafting game. This one really confuses me. Because I mean, maybe that's the <laughs> point, it's, it's Susia. When I started reading it, create and maintain rhymey Susian creatures, my first thought is this is a vote who wins super light party game. But then when they said it was a drafting game, my thought was, okay. So this is a drafting game with the theme of and stuff where the idea is card A, you draft with card B, you read the name out loud and it sounds funny. And it's just about combining them for scoring.
0: A little bit like
1: Epic Spell Wars. Yeah. Epic Spell Wars? Is that the one I'm thinking of? Yeah, yeah. So I think that this one will live or die actually on the way that the cards combine. If you have a clever way that the scoring changes based off of the permutations of the cards to make it matter that the glob combines with the lumps... I think that that could be really compelling. You've sold me on the hook, it sounds interesting, you've got a a cool theme with the drafting, but now what I'm expecting is the combinations to really be the payoff, so you have to make sure that you follow through and deliver that hook. But this one sounds sounds interesting to me. This is a little bit too confusing for me
0: to actually talk about the game, so instead I'm gonna talk about the pitch, which is what we're doing here, assessing hooks and pitches. It's too busy, I don't understand what's happening maybe because I was in the in the component hook world, but I was imagining actual globs and I was like, do you have to go around your house and find like wool? Or the fact that we
1: don't understand what the game is tells me that this has kind of failed as as a, as a hook. That's true. And one thing that bothers me is you say Sousian type creatures and items out of fluff, globs, lumps, and flair. Don't put jokes into your pitch and don't give me terms that don't mean anything. Like I I understand that they're Susian, but I don't need to know that for the pitch. If you said create and maintain... Susian type creatures. You don't need to say it's rhymey or alliterative. You don't need to give me examples. I know what that means. I would clean that up a lot. I think that the, the core of it could be presented more cleanly. And if we're misunderstanding what you're talking about, then you need to go back and, and rework this pitch a lot.
0: Yeah, I'll use AJ's pitch earlier. When he was pitching Wingspan, he said it was a component hook. And obviously in an actual pitch, you wouldn't say that. But he said, well, you weren't pitching Wingspan. When I got you to identify the hook, you picked one clean idea and explained that. You have these little eggs that look like easter eggs. You have the birdhouse that's a dice tower, done. I think a good pitch or a good hook is one clean idea. And sorry Anonymous, but you did send it in for feedback. So here's the feedback. I think there's just a little bit too much going on here for me to understand. This is, this is like three or four different things going on at once. I wanna know what the USP is and I wanna have an idea of what the game is and that's it. And again, just to go back to our, our Cheddarbeard friend, Stack Turtles bam, I know what the hook is. I know what the game is. I know, you know, in two words, you can really explain that whole game. And then the disc at the end gave it a nice little bit of flavor without
1: introducing too much stuff. But yeah, I I think this one's just a little busy. Yep, I agree. So Lance said, I combined the advice to start with an expansion of an existing game and the challenge of of submitting a one sentence hook. So we had said earlier that a good design exercise would be to start with a game that already exists and work on an expansion for it. So this is a hook for the expansion for the game that already exists.
0: Oh, great. Great idea. I love it, Lance.
1: So the pitch is, the game I started with is Cathedral. The hook slash pitch is, placing more of your buildings within the abbey walls than your opponent just got harder with rivers to cross and hills to to surmount. Now, I toiled, I went back and forth many times over whether or not to to contact you for clarification, and in the end, uh, I didn't. The problem with this is, one, it assumes your audience knows Cathedral, which you know, you're working on an expansion for Cathedral. Fair, fair enough for an expansion. I guess, yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a logic for that that makes sense. But the problem is, we don't know that game. I can, from <laughs> yeah. context, and I took a quick look, it seems like it's it's got sort of the era medieval age setup where it's like these very nice pieces that you're putting together and you're trying to score points based off the position of them. So that, that's pretty clear from the hook, anyway. What I would say is, that sounds like a good idea for an expansion, from, again, my lack of full context that you understand the thing that is interesting about the game, the positioning of them, and you're playing with that. You're making pieces that throw new wrinkles into how you position your pieces. But it is a little hard to judge because of what we were saying. And it's not sexy as someone who doesn't know how to play the game. Do you agree with that?
0: Yeah, I th- I'm going to take it a step further and, and be very presumptive. I think even if I knew Cathedral, this wouldn't be a hook for me. Because as I think, I think sexy is a weirdly appropriate word here. Um... <laughs> What's one of your
1: favorite expansions, AJ? What's an expansion that just blew your mind and you loved? Easy answer. Santorini The Golden Fleece. The central idea of Santorini is it's a simple abstract strategy game that's quite clever and already has a decent amount of depth. It already has a great hook of the components are amazing. It, It just explodes off the table. It's beyond gorgeous.
0: Great art, Mr. Cuttington.
1: But layered on top of that is these god powers and each one is a rule breaking special ability for the god that lets them do some cool things maybe it's you get to move an extra space in your turn stuff like that in the expansion it goes off the rails you can play as a god that's invisible (laughs) you can play as five characters on the board at once they do all sorts of crazy things that really really fundamentally change the game and really expand on the possibility space of what a simple rule set can do yeah that's a great sexy
0: hook again to use that word we talked about Surf and Turf last episode, which is the expansion to the most popular jellybean game, Village Pillage. And the hook of that was just, it's more villages. Like it's more villages that do more things. And so this sounds like a similar thing. It's a more content expansion. Neither of these hooks are great if you don't know the game, but you at least get an idea of why it's exciting. So I'm going to pull up the Kickstarter page for Surf and Turf and see exactly how he pitched it. All new cards, extended gameplay. That was the hook. <laughs> it's a very, very simple hook. But even if you don't know a single thing about Village Pillage, you know, oh, there's going to be a bunch of new cards, And there's going to be a new extended gameplay mode. Bam, done. Now, if you don't know Village Pillage, that's not going to be exciting enough that you're going to be like, "I'm going to buy Surf and Turf by itself." But that's not the target audience. The target audience is people who know Village Pillage and want the expansion. With Santorini, as you said, it's all new gods with game-breaking abilities. You don't need to know the original game for that hook to work. What the expansion hook wasn't is a new ability called Provoke that does this very specific thing. Because that's just—it's not alive enough. It's not enough of a hook. So. Again, I don't know Cathedral, I don't know how this expansion works, but you want your hook to be hooky. <laughs> Very uh, tautological of me. But you want your hook to, to really be like, here's why this is going to transform your experience of the game. And maybe if you know the mechanics of Cathedral, that sentence would be enough of a hook, but I feel like there's some way you can make it sexier.
1: Right, so they say, placing more of your buildings just got harder. So it's like, this. this is just like a slight... It's like the exact same game, just a bit more, as opposed to, okay, so you like the base game. Here's a thing that's going to significantly change. Transform it. Yeah, exactly. I guess if Cathedral's big flaw was that it was too easy to place
0: your buildings, then this would be a great hook. I don't know the game well enough, but I suspect that, yeah, uh, uh,
1: something a little juicier probably would have done better here. Okay, next hook. Russell sends in a 4X fantasy game where every player performs the active player's chosen actions simultaneously to reduce downtime and act as fog of war. There is some appeal to this. One of the biggest disadvantages of heavy or long or complex or really just any of these large scale is what I'm trying to get at conflict games is that they do take a long time and they can be exhausting. If what you're pitching is essentially one of these blood rage rising sun games not made by eric lang but also fall into this category Tot imperium you know all these types of games if you're pitching like this but lighter more accessible and and much faster there is definitely appeal to that i think this is actually a pretty good hook so what i expect from this hook is that not only are you taking the same actions simultaneously but i expect this game To run much shorter than other games in this genre When I hear this hook I think I can finally get one of these really big games played In a really reasonable amount of time
0: That's interesting Yeah, I I don't think you're wrong to take that from it It's also not what I took from it So I agree, I think this is a very (laughs) good hook I I was immediately like, I would play this And the reason that I would play this Is because as I've said, every pitch I have to play But especially with something like a 4x Execution is is 90% of the hook like, You're
1: absolutely right.
0: The things that appealed to me, the two things that really grabbed me were Fantasy 4X, which weirdly there's not that many Fantasy 4Xs, like I'm... Maybe, maybe there's more than I'm aware of, but uh, it just I think that the, 4X is a pretty small genre in itself, and I think every 4X I could think of is probably sci-fi. Now there's obviously exceptions to that, I'm not a massive 4X player, but Fantasy 4X kind of grabbed me by itself. And secondly, to simulate fog of war. Now this is obviously a video game term, but... As someone who's really entranced by mechanisms and systems and stuff like that, the idea of a board game that effectively simulates Fog of War, I'm like, I would play that. I would definitely check that out. And again, a hook is not going to get your game signed, but a hook will get a published attention. And this one would definitely, if I was the kind of person who published 4X fantasy games, this would definitely get my attention.
1: It's interesting because the Fog of War aspect didn't stand out to me as much. I've seen Fog of War simulated in a lot of different ways, and it is kind of a natural result of simultaneous action selection. But to me, the bigger selling point is the, the time-saving aspect. I do see what you're saying, but that's not remotely what left it to me.
0: You know what it is? It's the fact that Russell has understood what simultaneous actions will do. Like, there's a cohesion yeah. to this pitch that I really yeah. like. He said, "Simultaneous actions, which simulates fog of war." Now, either of them by themselves is fine, but the fact that they've been so well connected in this sentence, I'm like, okay. Like, I don't know, Russell. I don't know this game. Maybe it's terrible. Hopefully not. <laughs> he listens to this podcast, so obviously he's got excellent taste.
1: <laughs> but the fact that the single sentence hook has shown this awareness of what he's doing. Makes this effective for me. It's funny. When you said that, I thought that was a good point. But I thought it was a good point for a different reason. (laughs) (laughs) When you said the fact that Russell has thought about how simultaneous action selection simulates Fog of War, what I was thinking was Russell has realized that the primary disadvantage of 4Xs is they are long and difficult to get to the table. And Russell's thought through that the primary selling point is the thing that reduces the length of that. To me, that's the type of uh, forward thinking that's appealing. Obviously, we don't know. We haven't played the game. But my assumption
0: is not that this is going to be substantially shorter. It's that by making the turns shorter, you can fit more into that epic scope game. Also very possible. So I guess the the main feedback here would be, Russell, if you want this pitch... To say it's short, mention that it's short. If it's not short, be aware that people might hear this and think that it is.
1: Yeah, so this is definitely a good pitch. From what we're saying, you can see how we're taking it in sort of different ways. So I would just tweak it a little bit to clarify exactly the vision that you have for it. If the selling point is simultaneous turns to get more action jam-packed into the game, kind of lean into that. If it's to reduce the length and get more to like a, a warp gate sort of a length, then maybe push more in that direction. But this is good.
0: Yeah, very good pitch, yeah.
1: One of my close friends
0: and co-designers jeff fraser he works on forex games that's his like that's his jam he loves forex games and as someone who loves forex games he buys a lot of them and so for him the hook of a forex game is it's a forex game like (laughs) done (laughs) like he doesn't he doesn't need it to do anything special or fancy there's just so few of them out there because they're such an expensive endeavor that it being a forex game and good is what he and i'm using him to be representative of the target market needs so that's why i was like With this pitch, I'd be interested in playing it, but it'd have to be good, like, and that's true of every game, obviously, but particularly for 4X. Fantasy 4X is a huge pitch in itself, and then after that it's just, it's going to live or die on the quality of the game.
1: The one thing I'd just like to add really quickly is that knowing your target audience is really important. So if you're selling this to 4X gamers, you have to know that they don't want it too short, right? Like no one goes to 4X game for a half hour long experience. When I say I'm expecting this to be shorter, I mean instead of a three-hour game, we're talking hour-and-a-half-long game. That type of ballpark, right? Right, right. Um Because if, if you cut too much of that away, then all of a sudden you just lost your audience, and now who are you selling it to? Yeah, you're, you're making a game for no one.
0: Okay, next hook.
1: So Nate Wolf wrote in with six pitches <laughs> slash hooks because... He is a very prolific guy. I am very inclined to just go through all of them because I was so sold on Eurovast.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Nate's a a friend of mine who we have talked about in previous podcasts because he had one of the best
1: prototype hooks I've ever seen. Hit us! So, game one. A simple family game with enough strategy to appeal to hardcore gamers. So the problem here is it's just too generic. I don't really know anything about yeah. your game at all. I would simply say that's not a hook. That's just a description of an ideal. It is nice to have a game that's going to appeal to all audiences, something that's easy to learn hard to master that you can sell to mass market or like approaching mass market.
0: Santorini I would say matches that description. Yeah, really nice.
1: Santorini is a great example of that. But Santorini's hook went, say a simple family game with enough strategy to appeal to hardcore gamers. That's not even quite a supporting hook. Yeah. That's a design goal.
0: Like sure, try to make that. Yeah. But it's not a it's not again, to use the USP language, there's literally nothing unique about that. Because there's not enough Mm -hmm. substance for there to be something that is
1: unique. Yeah. So game two A game in which you use deck building to construct giant robots and attack your opponent's robots. So this is a thematic hook. The thing is, is there's lots of games that have robots in them. So to me, like, there's definitely people who will pick it up off the shelf and be like, I like robots, so I'm going to pick up any robot game off the shelf. And it's not so overdone that it's like, oh great, another fantasy card battling game. But deck building is also pretty overdone, frankly. And so to me, what this hook is missing is why does deck building in your particular game really show off the giant robots? Like, how how does that connect, you know? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Maybe because I know Nate,
0: or maybe because I just have an overactive imagination. But I I filled in that gap myself and got excited. (laughs) For me, what this pitch was is a deck builder game where the cards... And again, I might just be wholesale inventing this. Where the cards go out in front of you and form a robot. Like a little robot built out of cards that is fighting another robot. So... I didn't see this as a thematic hook as so much as a mechanical hook, which was deck building for a dueling game. And most deck buildings are not dueling. Like I, I can
1: actually think of very few examples, if any. Are there any deck builders that are straight up dueling games? nightfall and even like that's a game that plays more than two people but it definitely feels like a dueling game and even um shards of infinity and star realms like all these are are essentially dueling games that have deck building right
0: yeah yes and no star realms i haven't played it for a while but uh, if i recall correctly that was mostly about point acquisition like
1: no it's about killing your opponent
0: oh it is okay yeah i just haven't played it long enough okay so in that case you're right like the thing that separates this from star realms is the robot aspect so I think there's something here. I think, again, much like we're talking about with Russell's pitch, if one of these is correct, if we've managed to randomly stumble upon what you're actually trying to do, make sure that's built into the, into the pitch. Because right now we're kind of filling in the gaps ourselves.
1: Right. And so, like, Peter might be able to imagine how that could look with you building a little robot in front of me. For me, I just imagined, oh, this card is laser cannon. It deals three damage. Oh, this card's a jet pack. I get plus two defense. Right. Definitely need to show why your game is is different from from what I'm expecting and more what Peter is expecting or more what it actually is. Game number three. Every turn, you draw five cards and must play them in each of five different ways, including trashing one. Start with 20 cards and slowly go down to five while making tough decisions. This is my least favorite pitch. I'm so sorry, Nate. I haven't met you. (laughs) But... Honestly, I've I've interacted with you a tiny bit and first from the emails and you seem like a wonderful guy, but the reason why I, I want to like point to this one as an example is you're almost teaching me how to play the game instead of convincing me that your game will be fun. Don't tell me I start with 20 cards and go down to five. I don't need to know specifics. I don't need to know those types of things. What I want is the general feel of it and what's the thing that's really cool. I I was being facetious before. I I I tend to uh, be cheekily abrasive in in my uh, criticisms. Especially at night. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I do like about it is you have cards that you play in five different ways. That's the thing that's really got me interested. To me it makes me think about things like One Deck Dungeon where you've got cards that will overlap in different ways on your player board and use for different abilities. Or something like Glory to Rome with multi-use cards. That really gets me thinking like you've got five cards and each one has to be played in a different way. That sounds really cool. The rest of it feels like it's superfluous. I would just, I think you've got a good gem in there. I just think it needs a bit more refining to focus on that thing that's really cool. My two thoughts are, firstly, this sounds like Pixel
0: Tactics to me, which is not exactly the same, but it feels like it's going to fill the same kind of Space. Have hmm. you played Pixel Tactics, AJ? Yeah,
1: I, I see what you're saying. Sorry, finish your point. I see what you're saying.
0: Just the setup of Pixel Tactics is you've got all these cards that work in five different ways, and you've got to put them out, and then you proceed to actually play the game. Or maybe you shuffle them deal them out. But anyway, the core of Pixel Tactics is every card plays in five different
1: ways. And so I would want to know what made this different to that. To me, what makes it different from that is the fact that each card has to be played in a different way that turn. You have five cards, you will use all five that turn. Pixel Tactics, you can save cards up. You can play every card as soldiers. This one, it's like, wow, I really want this ability on this one, but I really want the same type of action on this card. So I have to make a trade-off and get rid of one and get the other. That sounds really interesting to me. And so, yeah, this leads directly into my second concern, which is it sounds like there's going to be
0: analysis paralysis hell. Uh, it sounds like every turn is going to be sitting there and, like, how many permutations are there? There's, there's <laughs> what, f- five exponential there? That's true. 20, 60, 120. Yeah, it, it sounds like there's going to be 120 ways of playing each hand. And while I know Nate is a good enough designer that it's not going to feel like that, I would want this hook to almost alleviate that. Like, if, if your hook mm. is you're stacking turtles, I want to know why this is also going to be affordable. Like, and the thing is, with a published game, you kind of don't have to no actually even with a published game you do have to worry about that a bit if your hook has a inbuilt concern you always need to work out how to make sure that that doesn't feel like a
1: concern there's a lot to ask of a hook but i hope you understand what i'm saying i think that's a really good point i think trying to head off that is very wise the way that i imagine it playing is a very light card game where it's like each thing has a really simple action like This one gets you an extra card next turn. This one gets you a dollar. This one lets you spend up to $3 on a thing. Really simple different abilities that end up being something where the trade-offs are still juicy, but the combinatorics aren't overwhelming. But maybe I'm being too generous. Well, yeah, because even with those small examples that you suggested, there needs to be four of them on every card. Yeah, but like good design can, can cover a lot of those things, right? Like if you have asymmetric values on them, it's like there's a lot of ways that it could be done where it's like your attention gets pulled in different directions. I want to take a minute to talk about a different example really quickly, if you don't mind. When I first sat down to play Five Tribes, I thought, my goodness, this game looks like a nightmare. Because there's probably a thousand different combinations of possible things you could do on your turn. <laughs> literally, literally a thousand, maybe more. But Five Tribes does a phenomenal job of focusing your attention. It's been a long time since I've played, but your level one heuristic, which is kind of like a mental shortcut to be able to skip over making every possible decision. You're like, oh wow, I really need blue people this turn. So where's all the high concentrations of blue people? Oh, you know what? There's not really any. Okay, well, if I'm not getting blue people this turn, I really wanna get a Jin. So how do I get a Jin this turn? This move, or this move, or this move, it would get me a jin. Okay, now I've got down to three moves out of a thousand in a few seconds. There's ways to do it like that, but you're right, it is definitely a concern. And you definitely want to alleviate that again. I'm also treating these like pitches instead of hooks. And I think, did we ask for pitches or hooks? I'm treating them pretty synonymously at this point. I'm treating them as like an elevator pitch. You've got one sentence to convince the person. Your hook should be contained within this one sentence pitch.
0: That's how I'm assessing them too. So
1: hopefully people didn't write in with hooks and now we're dealing with pitches and
0: that sort of different thing in people's mind. I would play this. I mean, I would play pretty much anything Nate put in front of me, but this one I would, even if I didn't know Nate, I'd be like, okay, I want to try this, because if he can pull it off, right?
1: Like, you're right, this, this is really interesting. If it can be pulled off without melting people's brains. I love that I start off by being like, oh, I hate this pitch, and then... I started defending it really aggressively. <laughs> I wasn't trying to be mean. It's just when you say things like start with 20 cards, slowly go down to five cards, that puts me in the mindset of like, you're teaching me the rule book. And that is just not what pitches want to be.
0: And that might even be him trying to cover the scope of what I was complaining right. about. Like, yeah. here's why it's not overwhelming because you start with 20 and end up with five. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think you're right that it runs the
1: risk of coming across as a bit dry. Hmm. Game number four. A one versus many game of harnessing the elements in a resource management deck building combo. So what type of hook is this? Say it again. One versus many game of harnessing the elements in a resource management deck building combo. So harnessing elements is the theme, but it sounds like... Yeah, I would call this a product hook personally. This feels to me like he's trying to sell the entire
0: product at once. And that's always my criticism too. I'm like, there's nothing, there's no USP here. There's nothing I can latch onto and be like, aha, this is the thing that makes me want to buy this game above
1: Yeah, so part of the problem with this one is it sounds like too many things to get the idea across well. I bet you this game is good. I'd be willing to put money on on this game being like a really cool, (laughs) interesting game. But when you say it's a one versus many resource management deck building game, that's just so many different things. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around. There's one piece of advice that you gave me that maybe you stole from some other designer at some point. (laughs) Probably from Nate originally. Can you imagine? Well, Nate, it's like Nate always says. (laughs) So what you said was, when you design something, you want it to be half new and half familiar. And what that means is you take some aspect that someone can latch onto that they already are familiar with or are already comfortable with and say, here's the thing about mine that's different from that and that's really cool. And a great example of this would be Dominion, right? It says, hey, you know deck building from Magic: the Gathering stuff? What if you had all the fun of deck building just right here in a 20-minute game, and that was it. You're like, okay, the, the half-old is familiar with deck building from these games and like building combos and stuff, and the half-new is that's all the game is that's really focused around this, and because it's so focused, you get to do tons of cool little combos that would normally yeah. not be available.
0: The, the, the thing I would say about... Uh, so, firstly, you're right. I, I saw that from... Not even from someone, I think it's just uh, general wisdom in creative industries generally. It comes up a lot in in screenwriting as well. And secondly, I always say that Dominion would not have been a hit in the 80s. Oh yeah. Like the exact same game, just as good as it is now. It just, it would have been too new for people to appreciate.
1: Yep, you're absolutely right. So
0: I think the issue with this is that, again, it doesn't feel like a hook to me because there's nothing I can hook onto. There's there's no one thing that I'm like, aha, that's the USP. That's the thing that's going to make people want to buy this above everything else. I think you're right. It's probably a very good game. Nate makes is, is a high-quality
1: designer. There's nothing in this hook that hooks me. Game five. <laughs> guide a small trade ship through space, trying to make the most money while juggling your constantly rotating crew.
0: Oh, this is an amazing hook. This might be the best hook we've heard all night. I think this is great. This is a thematic hook with, like, explanation of the mechan- Like, I hear this and I want to play it. I'm like, I see exactly what is different about this game. I see how the mechanisms we need to play with it. No, this, this for me is the best of Nate's
1: hooks and possibly the best hook. This one definitely hits everything right. It's, it's so concise. It's so clean. And you're right, it explains the thematic aspect of the game. But the thematic aspect of the game makes it so clear what the mechanical aspect is. That's what's so good about it. Yes,
0: right? yes. No, this This is great. Uh, what can people take away from this? What What is a good learning moment from this hook? I
1: think the thing to take away is it's much easier for people to understand what you're selling when they've got a cohesive thematic wrapper to it. So people love stories. People love the theme. And even if the mechanic is the hook, if you can explain how the mechanic works with your theme rather than really dry mechanical language, that's, what the, that's the golden ticket.
0: In the last episode, we did a brief robots hook, and I need, to, I need to come up with a good robot hook because I'm going to be pitching this. I also need a better name. <laughs> it's a game about robots rebelling against other robots, and the name is Robots because it's all robot space. But you picked out the hook of you put a worker down and it covers multiple spaces at once. I went with the hook of you are robots. And I didn't do this as well last episode, but hearing this great hook from Nate is making me understand my own game better. You are robots fighting against a robot who's gonna keep crushing you into cubes. Now that by itself doesn't have any mechanisms in it. Just like this one, it suggests mechanisms immediately. Because we're gamers, we know that cubes are typically a resource. So a robot crushing your workers into cubes tells you worker placement and resources all in once. yeah I think, I think the thing that people can take away from this is if you aim for a thematic game that has
1: mechanisms built in, It's much easier to write a hook. Absolutely. If when you're designing the game, the theme and the mechanics have this peanut butter and jelly overlap where they just fit so snugly, that's going to make your job of the pitch and the hook really, really easy. Because you can tell us the theme, which is going to get us invested much more easily. And it gets us already thinking about the mechanics that are going to be at play. Yeah, really, really good hook.
0: And then the challenge is making the game that lives up to the hook. Of course, of course.
1: (laughs) Last one from Nate, game number six a two-phase game using deck deconstruction in the first phase to collect resources and worker placement with a single player-made deck in the second phase to use those resources. This is obviously a mechanic hook. Yeah. The thing is, it's hard to imagine a little bit. This this does an okay job of what we were talking about before where you take something that we're familiar with in the twist. I know deck construction, I know deck building. This is deck deconstruction, so we're shedding cards in order to get resources. Somehow that ties into worker placement. That part I don't quite follow. use the first phase to collect resources and worker placement and the second phase to use them. And I I don't know what I'm using them for. Yeah. What is the second phase? You use them. That's That's really broad. When you talk about two phase game, I want you to tell me really cleanly, what is the first phase? And was the second phase and just by telling me those two things it should be really clear how they interact and that should be the thing that's really cool
0: i actually described the two-phase game earlier this podcast where i said the first first half you're building a map and the second half you're playing on the map and that's obviously a very very bare bones way of doing it but you can visualize that i actually had the same issue as you in a different direction which is that it was a deck deconstruction game where at the end you're all playing from the same deck i'm left wanting to know is that the stuff that everyone threw out is that Everyone's decks shuffled together. Like I want to know what that relationship is. So it's interesting with a mechanical hook. You kind of need to know the right amount of information to give because you you can't give it too much information or it's just going to be explaining the entire rules of the game. But in this case, I'm left with more questions and confusion than answers.
1: Yeah, and one thing that I really don't like about it is one of the joys of a deck building game. Deck building games are just fundamentally fun. It is just fundamentally fun to yes. build up. Yeah a deck and to use those cards and to have this customization it's very satisfying there's there's a lot of biological reasons we'll go into it in future podcasts but when you're deconstructing like that can definitely be interesting but it's not going to scratch the same itch that deck building does it
0: doesn't have an inbuilt fun
1: right and the thing that concerns me is if the second phase is all about this player built deck from what we shed it off in the first phase if that's supposed to be the cool thing i've played games that do stuff like that edge of darkness has it where you're card crafting but then the cards become evil and, and go against you it's not very fun to go against the things that you made and the bigger concern is it's really fun to deck build and get your combos going and say hey yeah i did this but when you look at a big pile of stuff that everybody kind of made and everybody made for different reasons, it doesn't have the same impact. If it was like, I'm deconstructing, and what I'm deconstructing is now going to affect me in the second half, and the deck that you deconstructed is going to affect you in a different way because of the choices you made, that would sound way more compelling to me than saying they're all going to get tossed into yeah. a pile. I read an article
0: about 10 years ago talking about writing kids' books. The person who wrote this article met someone who was like, hey... Every kid's book that is about an animal is always about a rabbit or a mouse or a squirrel or something like that. I'm going to write one where it's about a lion or something like that. And the person said, don't try to create something that goes against common wisdom just to do it. Instead, ask why that is the common wisdom. AJ, why are most kids books protagonists mice or rabbits
1: or small animals like that? Because they're cute and harmless and fun and the kids like them and they're not intimidated by them.
0: All, all those reasons, and because that's how a kid feels. A kid doesn't feel like a predator, mm. a kid feels like prey. Like, mice are, are, are scared and small, and kids are scared and small. Mm. Like, they can identify with these main characters in a way that they can't identify with a lion. Like, on the rare occasion it is a lion, it's, it's the, the lion who's teased by the rest of the, of the animals or something. Like, at the cowardly lion. Or, or lambs, a lot a lot of kids show protagonists are lambs because they are the skittish scared ones, because kids feel skittish and scared and so rather than saying like what's no one else doing i'm gonna do that ask why is everyone doing this and then maybe you can come up with a way of of subverting it and i'm not saying Nate's doing this but i feel like a lot of the time when people are like i'm gonna make a deck deconstruction game it's coming from this intellectual place of like everyone makes construction games i'll make deconstruction and not why is construction fun can deconstruction be fun in that same
1: way very good points
0: Okay, so that was all of Nate's. Uh, and I want to say, by the way, we like Nate, we know Nate. Please don't send us 20 things and expect us to read them all on, on, <laughs> on the air. <laughs> Nate, Nate gets a, a special pass. He's special. And maybe someday you'll be as special as Nate. But you got you to gotta get there through hard work and making Eurovast. Those are the two steps.
1: I cannot wait to play that game. <laughs> <laughs> that was our main episode. Time for the wrap up. Next episode is about terminology. Feel free to send in any terms you want to find and we will do our best to cover them quick teaser from that episode i think this is a good one to do separately because it's kind of got a lot of weight but kind of feels out of place i want to talk about semi-co-ops <laughs> this is like your uh,
0: your white whale
1: <laughs> <laughs> well so the thing is about semi coops is everyone uses semi-co-ops to find one very specific subset of semi-co-ops and it drives me crazy they think shared lose condition and everyone can win or lose from other conditions. That is certainly an example of semi-co-ops. Some would say a bad example of a semi-co-op. There are very few that follow this formula that work. I would argue literally one. But there's a lot of unique ways to do semi co And oh, sorry, to define the term in the way that I feel is most accurate, a semi-co-op simply refers to a game that has an incentive structure That encourages working with players in some areas and disincentivizes working with each other in others. There's some systems that are pulling you away and making you antagonistic to them, and some systems that are encouraging working with them. Do you think that's fair?
0: Yeah, I I think that that's what semi-coop means. Uh, Semi-coop game is when the entire game has that structure, but a game can have within it semi-cooperative mechanics. I'm thinking of a game called Brewcrafters, which is one of my favorite games. I love it a bit, and if you're playing with, I think it's four players in Brewcrafters, then a new board gets added. And it's a bo- because with more players, you actually don't get that many more resources. So this new board allows you to pool your resources and build recipes of beer together. So you can go to this space and you can put down two ingredients. And at some point, someone else, or maybe you on a later term, will come along and finish that thing and you'll split the rewards. So that is what I would call a semi-cooperative or, or even a cooperative mechanic Within a board game, that is by no means... No one would ever call Brewcraft as a semi a game, but it has a mechanic in it that is semi-cooperative.
1: Right, and something like Rising Sun has the alliance mechanic. Yeah,
0: every turn you have to pick someone who you're going to
1: ally with. Is that right? You don't have to, but you basically have to. You, you, you want to. You <laughs> yeah. very much want to. <laughs> yeah, but because the incentive structure is, if I play this action, my partner also gets that action. And so it's, it's basically just a, a bonus that you get and... There's very few things about being an alliance that are bad, arguably none. But the thing is, is you cannot win together. You will only win by yourself. So the incentive structure has some things that push you together and some things that pull you apart. Something like Cosmic Encounter takes us a bit more deeply where you literally can win with other people together cooperatively or you can win by yourself. And there's any permutation of, of players together can can do that. And so, yeah, again, I would call that a semi-cooperative mechanism within
0: the game Cosmic Counters. I wouldn't call Cosmic Counter a semi-cooperative game. Agreed. I think for it to be a semi-cooperative game, that has to be core to the entire... Th- something like Dead of Winter or Archipelago, where
1: that is a fundamental, baked-in part of the game. Mm-hmm. Just want to define it, so I don't want to go too much into examples, but I expect at some point we will touch th- on this topic again, because I think it <laughs> is a very interesting topic.
0: I think that constantly we will touch on it, because it is your obsession, AJ! <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love alternate incentive structures and alternate win conditions. I think those things are just fascinating. On to our fun question. This is an unrelated to game design question. Peter, oh, okay, so I learned my lesson because in a previous episode, I asked you a question and you took it in such a stupid way. So I, I'm gonna try really hard to use game designer terminology. Let's see if you can ruin it anyway. Sounds like you're challenging me to break the question. Go ahead. <laughs> which analog and or digital games from your childhood hold up the best, and which the worst? Can we go first? No,
0: I'm trying to work out how self-serving to be with
1: my answer. <laughs> Um, uh, the best game is a the... uh, uh, village pillage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Two Jelly Bean games, Scuttle and French Toast, are literal adaptations of games from my childhood. and uh, meow, actually, three three of our games <laughs> are adaptations from my childhood. Scuttle is based on an old game called Cuttle, which is a game you can play with playing cards. French Toast is based on a party game called French Toast, and Meow is based on Mao. So I'm trying to think. Of, I'm trying to think of an answer that's none of those three, <laughs> because basically, if something was great in my childhood, I try to turn it into a product. <laughs> I'm going to ask my classic clarifying question. (laughs) Does this have to be a published game or can it be a folk or party game? Your choice. The other one, other than Cuttle Mao, and French Toast that I'm thinking of, is... I can't remember what it's called. Mega Tic-Tac-Toe? Have you ever played this? (laughs) Okay, so you know Tic-Tac-Toe. I do. Uh, In Australia, we call it Noughts and Crosses.
1: Okay.
0: Very literal people, Australians. You draw a, like, full page-size Noughts and Crosses book. In each of the nine spaces, you draw a small Noughts and Crosses book. Okay. I play circles, you play X's, I play knots, you play crosses. If I win one of those little boards, then I get to put it on the big board. So if I win the little game of tic-tac-toe in the center spot, then BAM! I've got an O in the middle, and now I'm in a really good position, because as we all know, that's the strongest part of knots and crosses. The trick is, whenever you place one of your pieces, so let's say we start in the middle, I can't remember what the actual rules are. If I put my first piece in the top right, your response is going to have to be on the board that's in the top right. So if you respond by putting a piece in the middle, then bam, I get to put a second one in the middle. And so it's this, it's this really weird meta game of noughts and crosses. Tic-tac-toe. Pardon my Australian coming out. It makes it a proper strategy game. <laughs> I played it as a kid. got so fascinated by it. And I think it really holds up. I played it
1: recently and I had a really good time. I've played an abstract strategy that takes the concept of...
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, I know the one you're talking about. It's coming out soon. Um... That by, by Adam's...
1: By Adam's Apple games, right? Again, bad with publishers. <laughs> Carry on. Anyway, we'll do a follow-up uh, next episode where we're like, oh, it's that game. <laughs> I've definitely seen that before. It's Very interesting. It's very cool. I'm going to try and answer for published games as well because I think that's a more interesting question.
0: Because a lot of these things are like they existed but no one have ever published them. So the published game I played as a kid that I think holds up the best. My childhood was like playing AIDS Odyssey and Crash Bandicoot and I just recently
1: bought those again. I played a lot of Halo which I played as a kid. So... Okay, I have to to tangent, but so important. Have you ever seen anything with the guy who created Abe's Odyssey? Have you ever seen him in any interview ever?
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, Lord Lanning. Yeah, Yeah. I'm fascinated by Lord Lanning. He's a heck of a character.
1: He's the only person on Earth who is more interesting than you are.
0: (laughs) 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 That is definitely not true, but I'll take it as the compliments intended.
1: Well, you think you're more interesting than Lanning?
0: (laughs) (laughs) no i I think there's a lot of people more interested than me no lord lanning is absolutely fascinating he he's he's one of our big inspirations like the way he ran his company and i'm i'm very sad he never really did anything after the abe games because he's such an interesting guy i've been obsessed with him since i was a kid so yes i'm gonna say mega tic-tac-toe and abe's
1: odyssey are the the two that i think fulfill that requirement what holds up the worst though was that the other question with the worst yeah, what was, was up the best and the worst? You don't have to answer it, but if you have an answer that comes to mind.
0: Oh, so much. Yeah, most games I played as a kid, I, go, I went back to it and I was like, oh, this is just not good. Oh, <laughs> I have another one for like, not, not necessarily holds up, but man, it was an interesting folk game. It's okay. Yeah, th- this is one that I was really, really, really obsessed with as a kid and I played game recently. It just doesn't work. It just fundamentally doesn't work. And much like Mega Tic-Tac-Toe, it's someone like trying to adapt an existing game into a better version of it. It's basically bluffing snakes and ladders. So you draw out a Snakes and Ladders board, spaces one to hundred. And then you have a certain, like you do this individually, you have a certain number of points to allocate positive and negative. So you get to draw the snakes and you get to draw the ladders. You guys call it Snakes and Ladders? Yeah,
1: the more modern version is called Shoots and Ladders,
0: but everyone will know Snakes and Ladders. And so I can, on my board, decide where all the snakes and where all the ladders are, and you can do that on yours. And then it's a little bit like Scallywags actually, in which we're trying to out-bluff the other person by building a thing for them to explore. So it cuts them it cuts the dice out. So you just get to choose, hey, it's my turn. Where am I going to go? I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to roll a 4 on my first turn. I'm like, "Aha, a 4 actually takes you back to 1. So you just lost 3." And so as a kid, I thought this was such an interesting idea because I would put a snake on six that went back to one. But then once you get past that, it's not that much interaction. It's just kind of like randomly stumbling upon it. The idea of this like intellectually, ah, I'm going to predict where you're going to go and account for it and make it negative is really that's the essence of Scallywags. That's why I enjoyed Scallywags. And so this is that, but it just doesn't hold
1: up at all. (laughs) What about (laughs) you? What's your answer? For the game that holds up the worst, have you ever heard of Kingdom Hearts? Yes, the Disney game, right? Yeah, so it's basically every Disney movie is now a Disney planet. You go to the planet of The Lion King or the (laughs) planet of The Nightmare Before Christmas, and you are a character that hangs out with Donald and Goofy. And they sort of weave in this like meta narrative into the little stories that you do as you hit up all these different worlds. And it it also combines Final Fantasy characters because it's from Square Enix. Oh, right. (laughs) I didn't know that. They have Sephiroth in the same scene as like (laughs) Winnie the Pooh and stuff like that. Not not quite that extreme, but as a kid, first of all, the concept is just delightful. And as sort of a button mashing action game that you can brute force through, it was great for me as a kid. The story for one is actually pretty good. It's it's simple, it's sweet, it's really charming. All the characters are great and the concepts are really interesting. The world's really well fleshed out. And so the first game was really quite good for its time. Going back to it, frankly, (laughs) it's unplayable, but that's not even why it's on my list. The reason why it's on my list is because every subsequent game in that series has ruined the original (laughs) game. Oh no. We are now at the point where it's like, and then this person went back in time and possessed this person who cloned himself four times. And then <laughs> the third clone. And I'm not even exaggerating. There are flowcharts of the clones. <laughs> uh. so
0: I'm not a video gamer. And so the vast majority of my video game knowledge comes from paratext around video games. So people on YouTube talking about video games. I'm a huge Brian David Gilbert fan. I think he's hilarious. I think his videos are phenomenal. And after I watched all the videos on his channel, I went to the thing he's best known for, which is the Unraveled series on Polygon, which recently wrapped up. I have watched every Unraveled video multiple times. I just love Brian David Gilbert that much. So everything I know about Kingdom Hearts comes from Brian David Gilbert's video
1: on Kingdom Hearts, which we'll link to in the show notes. That's pretty good. And the game that holds up the best, there's an old PC game called Stronghold. You ever hear of that? No, I haven't. It's like a, it's a sim game building up a castle and you're maintaining it and you're maintaining also like the economic infrastructure so you have to you know manage the food rations with building homes for everyone while you're defending from attacks and building up more and more elaborate defenses and i played it earlier this year or sorry uh, earlier in 2020 when the pandemic hit i played for like 50 hours solid part of the reason why i like it so much is because i want to like real-time strategy games but they require too much reflexes. And the thing this game does that's so smart is instead of having a difficulty scale, they've got a game speed. So I don't have the speed to hit a hundred buttons in a minute and have all these macros and stuff. But what this game does is it's like, you know what, your reflexes aren't good. Just slow down time, press all the buttons. And then, you know, if you're just at the slower part of the game where you're gathering resources, speed it up, skip past all the boring parts. And that feature really smoothed out the things I didn't like and let me just focus on building cool castles and stuff like that. I had a great time with it. I actually just started
0: replaying Crash Bandicoot. They, they did a, like a remake of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that game does not hold up
1: very well. The original <laughs> is... It hasn't wowed me. I'll tell you that. The perspective of it is what's what kills it because you can never oh, tell. It, it's
0: brutal. <laughs>
1: first person platform well it's it's third person but it's like from I don't know how you say that it's not isometric it's like looking directly at the jumps so you have no sense of, of depth yeah it's like two and a half d it's a real beast um <laughs> I was trying to finish a time challenge and I spent
0: I think like two hours on a level and didn't even rank in the top three and I'm like I don't know if this is because I don't have the power ups yet anyway I won't go to Crash Bandicoot too much but I think <laughs> that would be one on, on the list for me that did not hold up So that is our episode of Fun Problems. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions or you want to submit words for us to define, then how can they come in contact with us, AJ?
1: I'm going to say in like five seconds after the music. Oh, that's right.
0: (laughs) That's an outro. (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye, guys.
1: Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Pod, or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.